bow your heads with me, please. Thank you for that amazing love of yours, divine and amazing. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for a quiet evening, for this time of reflection together. Thank you for the beauty of the music, the beauty of our prayers to you face to face. The beauty of moments like this when you can take my lips and speak through them, that you might speak to each of our hearts, that you would take our minds and think through them, that you would take our wills and bend them to your own, and that you would take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. If you turn to page six in your service sheet, that will bring you to our gospel reading, Luke chapter four. One of the things that's quite extraordinary about this always to me is that as Jesus begins his ministry, so he's grown up to adulthood, and John the Baptist has done his work of preparing the way for him. And Jesus enters into the beginning days of his ministry. And as he does so, he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Look at that first verse. It said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan... That's where he had been baptized by John into his ministry and mission. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So he begins his ministry with a severe fast in a severe place, a wilderness, a desert, and is severely tempted by Satan across that period of time. And as you hear the temptations and he makes his way through them and rebuts Satan, it says that Satan left him until an opportune time. In other words, he would be back. And what the church has done in the tradition of the past is to take those 40 days by which Jesus was prepared in the wilderness for his lifetime mission. Lifetime that in its mission lasted only three years before he was executed on the cross. In that, he was being prepared for every temptation every moment of a lifetime of living righteously for his Father in heaven, that when he came to the cross, he might present himself in absolute innocence and righteousness, having not failed or sinned at all, as a perfect offering for our sin. And Jesus, in being tempted was tempted far more than any of us have been because you and I 
yield to temptation. If you have never yielded to temptation, you have taken temptation further, as did Jesus, than anyone else. You see that? Inasmuch as he never yielded, he was taken further than any of us have ever been taken in whatever temptations we have either endured or yielded to. And this is all part of the preparation, having fasted for these 40 days and nights in a desert place, in a wilderness, for the lifetime of resisting Satan, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where with tears and drops of blood as sweat, coming through the pores of his flesh, he is again before the Father and saying, Father, is there any way this cup can pass from me? That is, that he will not have to drink the cup of our salvation on the cross. Is there any way? And in suffering, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, unbelievable, intense pain, anguish, a struggle in that battle, knowing what he was facing. He says, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what the church has done in its wisdom, not this church only, but worldwide, has taken symbolically those 40 days and placed them right before Good Friday so that we might take for ourselves a season of trial and or denial and or intense, deliberate, spiritual persuading to have a time when we would take God all the more seriously, set our sights on him in a more focused way than normal, because we are headed toward that same cross and we will be celebrating those three hours with Jesus on the cross. Here come Good Friday, an amazing, wonderful service. Between here and there, we are on Sundays preaching our way through the Lord's Prayer, teaching prayer as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And on Wednesday nights, taking the great theme of salvation, which is what that weekend that changed the world represents, take the great theme of salvation and analyze it under great theological statements such as redemption, reconciliation, justification, and so on. And you see inside your back cover right across from this scripture, if you're looking at it. What we're calling it, mere Christianity, borrowing C.S. Lewis's title, our salvation considered. And you see the five Wednesday nights, reconciliation, regeneration, redemption, atonement, justification. And if you look at them listed by date, we begin with redemption next Wednesday evening. We'll be in Wilson Hall, 
will not be a worship service so much as it will be a, a, maybe a strenuous teaching time for some of you. But to take the word redemption, the concept of redemption, Pastor Ed Glover will be preaching to that. And if you've looked at your Lenten brochure that came to you in the mail, and we have more of them available out in the commons, we're also having a visit with God's Facebook. And week by week, interviewing mostly our staff, so that next, uh, next Wednesday night we'll be interviewing Nicole Hartung, who leads our children's ministry. So between our teaching and what we believe will be the inspiration of hearing how God has worked in the lives of people that you know on our staff or need to get to know via these interviews, it's a steady weekly, midweekly preparation for Good Friday and thereby Easter Sunday. Our Monday Thursday service that will be, of course, immediately preceding Good Friday, will be a magnificent presentation of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. I can't give the game away, but you will want to be here. And that will lead us immediately into a celebration of the Last Supper, as Jesus celebrated it before going to the cross. And what we have set before you in these preparations, and it was beautiful to see our choir and the musicians here this evening and to hear the songs that they have sung and participate in them with us. What we have prepared for you, in a sense, is a banquet of teaching, reflection, worship, and an opportunity to have this Good Friday and Easter be like no other Good Friday or Easter that you have ever experienced. It's wonderful to see you all here this evening on Ash Wednesday. I would love for you, before we are done here this evening, to make the commitment to be here every Wednesday, to enjoy and experience what we have prepared for you, as well, of course, Sunday by Sunday, and come to that Monday Thursday communion into the Good Friday time of reflection and then the astounding explosion of worship as we celebrate Jesus is alive. It's all of a piece and it's all for you so that you can take these 40 days and like Jesus prepared for his ministry, you prepare in a very serious fashion for what God is going to be doing in your life for you through this season and on that holy weekend. Jesus was serious about our salvation. It was not a lightly decided thing in glory for him to come as one of us, live as one of us, and die, not just as one of us, but as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That is no light weight venture.
And in John chapter 17, what Jesus does there is a remarkable thing. John chapter 17, he's praying to the Father at the Last Supper. And he says these words. This is the beginning of John 17. After Jesus had said this, he looked to heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Do you know what a salutary statement that is? The time has come. This is it. A moment in time. And he is facing the cross. He has celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. He's speaking to the Father and begins by saying that the time has come. What time? The time for which he had all been prepared to give his life on the cross. And what he says about it in that opening statement is this. The time has come, Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And the Hebrew word for glorify is actually rooted in the concept of heaviness, weightiness, what we call gravitas, something with gravity, weighty, substantial. It's not just glorify like put bright lights on me, make me look good. It's take what was a degrading, belittling, ugly, vicious death, which was a dishonor to who he was and dishonor to any humanity, the thieves being crucified with him, completely belittling, scorning, discarding, driven by pain with spikes through the feet and the hands. And he's saying, you take this disgusting event and you make this of such weighty significance, the kind of weightiness and significance that I had with you in heaven before this all got started. Jesus was into the weightiness, the substance, the gravitas of what he was about to do. So when he says, Father, the time has come, he says, take what's going to happen and make it significant, weighty, substantial. Not just kissed off as another criminal, executed. Substantial, weighty. Not lightweight, not flaky, not insubstantial. Weighty. He took what was happening with deadly earnestness and seriousness. And given that, what I'm urging for myself and for you is that same sense of weightiness associated with this season and those moments to which we are headed together as a church family, to take it that seriously that you will enter into it, not as something just to do, not something just to please the pastor who's asking you to make that kind of commitment, 
Not even something to do that says, yes, I will test my will. I will put myself to the test. I'll make that commitment, and so help me, I will be here. Not even that. But to take advantage of this time as we have prepared it for you, and as the church in its tradition throughout history has really set it apart for us, so that we can enter into the substantial weightiness of what is about to overtake the Lord on the cross and we enter into those moments with him. One other reference I would turn you to, just by way of an encouragement, is Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, says the writer to the Hebrews, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that is the image of the athletic arena, the crowds cheering the athletes as they run the track, their own special Olympics. Let us throw aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me mention briefly three things about this passage. The first is this, that it's not just sin that we're to lay aside. We are to lay that aside, the sin that entangles but any weight, anything that gets in the way of our running well for Jesus. And that doesn't have to be sin. That just happens to be, in our lives, so many other distractions. Things that we take on as responsibilities that get in the way of our primary responsibility to run after Jesus and follow him. We've set our hand to the plow. But it's so easy for us to be distracted, even depressed, and we end up stepping aside from what we've set our hand to, and we weaken, and Satan comes along and leads us by the nose, and we're off into whatever insubstantial waste of time in, in opposition to and against the very race we have set ourselves to run for him. You hear what the scripture is saying. Whatever gets in your way of running after Jesus in earnest, set it aside. Lent is a brilliant time to do that. So you've got the things you'll set aside and the commitments that you will make. And the second thing is this. He speaks about the race that is set before us. That literally means that each of us has got our own race to run. 
You can't run my race, and I can't run yours. Neither can you run anyone else's race in your family, or amongst the people where you live or work, or in the clubs or the health clubs or shopping centers, wherever you find yourself, you can't run anybody else's race. God's got a race for you to run. You run your race. You know when you're taught as an athlete running on the track, don't be looking around to see how the others are doing. You can lose the race in checking out the rest. You set your eyes on what God's called you to do and be about the race that he's given you to run. Some of you have got some very painful races to run. Some of you have got some very busy races to run. Some of you have got some very testing, difficult races to run. I would say that may apply to all of us because life is not easy. It is tough. But God is great. And so the third thing is this, that we set our eyes upon Jesus and run after him. He set the pace. You focus on him. Just down the road from where I was born and raised in Oxford and where I grew up and lived is the track on which the first four-minute mile was run by Roger Bannister. And in our school athletic programs against other schools, when we were joined together to compete, that's the track on which we ran. So here I am, a pretty leggy but not very good hurdles runner, running that track. But when Roger Bannister ran his four-minute mile, do you know that there was another runner on the track who set the pace for him and ran ahead of him and ran himself nearly to a standstill that Bannister would have, like the dogs chasing the hare, his chasing the other runner? Guess who's ahead of the track on you? Jesus. He's setting the pace for you. He knows your race. He knows your pace. Set your eyes on him. As it says here, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Your faith, my faith. Set your eyes on him. And everything we have put together is to enable you to do just that. So you've got a race to run. It's your race. Lay aside every hindrance on the one hand and set your eyes upon Jesus. And when it says, who for the joy that was set before him, do you know what the joy was? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But the joy wasn't the cross. The joy was the fruit of the labor of his dying on the cross. He looked beyond the cross to you and me becoming believers. He looked beyond the cross, yes, to the resurrection, but the power of that resurrection exhibited in our lives so that heaven is our home. And he will one day welcome us home. And the joy that there is in that. We've just finished up the prodigal God with a study on the two prodigal sons, his two prodigal kids. It finishes with a party. 
a celebration for the joy that was set before him, for the party that there was for you and me coming home beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, coming to him. He endured the cross and despised the shame as if it were nothing. It was really something. But he took it on. He didn't let it get in his way because his time had come and everything he was brought to earth for, he fulfilled. So as he sets out in that race ahead of you, from this moment on, renew your faith. Renew your vision of him. Renew your desire to run well for him. Set your eyes on him and follow him. Is that a deal? That's a great deal and a great opportunity. Don't miss it. Let's bow our heads to pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we do praise and thank you for a moment like this, for a season like the one we are entering into, to begin again with you, to get up and run again. Forgive us, Lord, those of us who have slipped and fallen and gotten up and slipped and fallen and given up. Right now, Lord, we sense you lifting us back onto our feet and saying, come on, follow me. And as the Lord sets out, so you set out behind him. Go with us in our run with you this season, Lord Jesus. Protect us against all the wiles of Satan to bring us down. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Whatever commitments we make to you for this season, to become more like you, run closer to you, do better for you, to get rid of stuff that's in the way. By the power of your spirit at work in us, Lord, help us to run well for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.